media mode. covers your story, your story will be built from the ground up. All right, welcome back for our all new episode of The Jason Lee Show. Now, I have been around the game for about eight years, and there's so many people that are doing it and trying to do it, but there are only a few, a hand, handful that are masters uh, in the art of interviewing people, digging up dirt, doing research, and to make sure that the internet will be burnt down when the tea drops. And that is my next guest, somebody who I've uh, built a friendship with over the last several years, and has probably the best interview I've ever done. Give it up for DJ Vlad. Now, I'm not into gassing people up. I don't do that. I've never been a fan of telling people things that aren't true or giving people their flowers. But I have to say, everywhere I go, uh, young people in the culture, fans of hip hop, people that want to learn more about me and that have looked at my interviews over the last eight years that I've done, hands down, say they love my interview with you the most. Um, and uh, I have to say, as somebody that went over there not really knowing what to expect, because I've known you for years, and you know whether you're a friend or not, you got a job to do. And when mm -hmm. you're in the press and you're in the news, and people are talking about you, and you're doing this work, uh, you're and you're going for an interview, you have to be honest and open. I just feel like that's the best interviews. But what makes the interviews the best, or even better, is when the person across from you has done their research. You went all the way back to my childhood, and I remember sitting there with you. And not knowing where we were going to go, because I was working with Ye at the time, and I had all my viral moments. But you started from my childhood, and it disarmed me. And I don't know if you know this. You disarmed me by asking me about my mom and foster care and my brother. And it just made me feel so comfortable to just really share. And I really felt like it brought the best out of me. And I just wanted to thank you. And I've never said that to you. So thank you. Very, very welcome. Yeah. Very welcome. You have an incredible story. So learning about you in the process, that, that's kind of the cool part about what I do is I get to really learn about the person before I actually sit down with yeah. them. Yeah. But do people do that anymore? I feel like people don't. I, people, I feel like people just, we live in this clip-based world where people see a clip, that's then their opinion, and they go and approach the person or the work from a perspective of maybe not really knowing the full perspective. Like how important is it for you and for the work that we do to do that? It's extremely important. Uh, certain people have different styles. Like Tim Westwood likes to just sit there and just vibe with the person. No research, no nothing. And I'm the exact opposite. I like to be just surgical with it. Uh, get as much information about the person. Spend days researching. Uh, if they had a book like you have, you know, read the book. Watch all their other interviews. Uh, call up people that know them and have conversations about them. Um, you know, just, just really research and do the best interview that's humanly possible. Like, you know, when I sit down, I'm trying to hit a home run every single time. There's no filler. There's no, okay, this is just, uh, you know, a Tuesday and, you know, I got more important stuff to do. Like, everything I do, I feel has to be a home run. So that, that's why there was a lot of research behind your interview and every other interview that I do. Well, when, so when you did my interview, you had read the whole book? Well, I read some of it. My assistant, Kente, you know, read some of it. And you know, takes notes. And takes notes, puts it together, and then I go through, and then I kind of fill in the blanks, and then I'll do my own research and so forth. So it's a collaborative effort. Yeah, I mean, I loved how just how deep you went. You knew the names. You knew the situations. I mean, you know, for somebody who interviews a lot of people, I am probably a little bit opposite. I try to be a mix between you and Tim. Like, I want to vibe and follow the person in the interview, and we do, our team does a lot of, research and I try to read through the notes, but you know, you know, I'm, I'm hard to retain a lot of information, like retain information with ADD is just really, really difficult. But 
you know, when we thought about you coming here today, we wanted to honor you and all the work that you've done because I really feel like when it comes to being thorough and showing the uh, appreciation and investment for the person that you're talking to, you do the work. And I think that's probably why you're at the top of the game in what you do. Yeah, man, I try. I try. Like I said, there's a, you have a lot of important people in this era. And not everyone's going to get a big documentary made about them. But they have important stories. And we're not going to be here forever. We're going to be here for a certain period of time. And I'm capturing them at a certain time in their life that they'll never be that young ever again. So to really get that person's story and to create what I consider evergreen content, content that when you and I are gone, people will go back and watch and you know, students will research and people will write papers on about it in college and people will learn about them. Um, it's important. And a lot of times we've given people their only life story interviews before they pass. So that's important. People like John Witherspoon, uh, you know, like people like Mo3, uh, people like FBG Duck. Like, unfortunately, they're no longer here. They died way too young. Uh, oh, I mean, Witherspoon had a nice long life, mm-hmm. but the other two got, got gunned down very early. So it's just important to leave these pieces behind. And that kind of what drives me to do what it is that I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, we're going to talk about Vlad. Had, there's so much to talk about. And the first interview I ever had with somebody as iconic as a Vlad, who is a person and as an interviewer, you know, and to the culture, I want to be as thorough as possible. You started out as a DJ. Yeah. And why did you choose hip-hop? Because I feel like in this world that you're in, you're in, you and academics and Adam22, y'all are in a world that comes with so much chaos. Um, why did you fall in love with hip-hop as a DJ when you could have been doing any type of music? Well, falling in love with hip-hop came way before DJing. It came in elementary school. So I'm 50 years old. I'm as old as hip-hop. 50 years young. 50 years young. Louis uh, down to the socks, by the way. Every time I see Vlad, he has on designer. You know he's getting that bag. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, when, when hip-hop became a nationwide thing in the, around the mid-'80s, uh, early-'80s, I became a breakdance kid. I fell in love with it very early on uh, in elementary school. Uh, and it just started a love affair that never stopped. And as hip hop developed, you know, cause you didn't know that hip hop was gonna be around in the beginning, you know, like genres like go-go that are still around, but are just very, you know, just based in DC. They never really went worldwide like hip hop did. So you don't know, you fall in love with the art form and I'm happy the way it turned out. But at the time it was, it was my everything. And I just stayed with it, stayed with it, you know, and tried all the different parts of hip-hop you know tried rapping for a little bit i sucked you were uh, rapping i mean very brief. wait is there a dj very, vlad mixtape no, with you no, no okay because no, I, I no very brief because well, you, know you know what it was was i was actually before i started rapping i tried i was doing producing so i was making beats when i was going to uc berkeley um you know i was finally getting to meet rappers you know that were actually taking it seriously like hieroglyphics just got signed and they would hang out on telegraph ave in berkeley when i was going to school there so i started making beats and i started working with local rappers I started, I tried a little bit, but I, I sucked. And, uh, you know, I tried producing. I tried that for a few years and realized I'm never going to be a Dr. Dre or a DJ premier. So I stopped. Then when I started DJing, it was like, oh, I'm actually naturally good at this. So that kind of became the focus of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2002, I realized that if I wanted to really take it seriously, I'd have to move to New York. So I was living in the Bay at the time in Oakland. So 2002, I was dead broke, uh, essentially homeless. And I moved out to New York and, uh, you know, uh, these promoters that I was cool with, these, this Trini family just said, hey, you can sleep on our couch until you get, you know, your feet off the ground. So I just slept on the couch and was doing clubs and just try to figure out my way through this culture. And you lived in the Bay Area in San Mateo of all places. Yeah. So, so my family, so I was born in Ukraine. 
Uh, we moved to Springfield, Massachusetts. So we lived in the projects out there for a little bit. And then we moved out to the West Coast, first in San Francisco. Then we settled down in San Mateo. My family bought a house there. And I was there all through you know, high school until I graduated. Then I went to UC Berkeley. And then the next 10 years was spent in Berkeley and Oakland. So did your love for hip hop, was it birthed in the Bay? Yeah. Because Bay Area hip hop, I mean, so that was back in like the, the 80s. Well, SIBO was Sacramento and that was later Marvelous and all that, yeah. but that was RBO Posse, Too Short, yeah. E-40. Too Short was definitely one of my early, early Bay Area, you know, <laughs> artists that I really fell in love with. You know, Too Short, E-40, uh, Spice One. Spice One. Yeah. Like what about Master P? People don't know Master P was Master in the Bay Master P was too. living in Richmond at the time. Yeah. yeah, the ghetto was trying to kill me. Those posters were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, like I said, hieroglyphics as well. It was... You know, JT the bigger figure, like a JT lot of the underground, the figure. The underground dudes and everything. Yeah, man, just everything. I soaked it all up. There was an, well, Mac Mall. Mac Mall. Yeah. Whatever happened to Bay Area music? I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful to the culture and people watching the Bay Area, but it really changed because I feel like Bay Area music back then, there was such a stronghold on rap music. Is, yeah. Right? What, what happened? Well, I think it was the independent thing that really worked for the Bay Area. Like you'd have these dudes that were kind of hustling and they sort of figured out a way to transition to hip hop. So what would happen is let's just say Nas would come in town and do a show. So they would pay Nas like 10,000 to do a verse. Now that verse wouldn't really be cleared. You know, the label, what is it? Columbia wouldn't really give you, wouldn't really allow them to do it, but they would basically just put it out underground. So they'd get Nas, they'd get this person that, you know, if Jada Kiss would come to town or the ghetto boys would come to town, they'd just get verses from everyone and put out these compilations. And then that's how these rappers started to kind of come up. Mm-hmm. And some were better than others, but some of them were just hustling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a whole independent music scene out there, a whole independent music distribution. And they were starting to make money, like serious money that way. And some of them, like E-40, really took it very serious and really blew up off of that. And other ones, it was just like a way to diversify their money. So that's where the Bay Area independent scene, I think, really came up. Do you think back then when people were hustling um, and really organically building those fan bases. Because I remember E-40 used to come to Stockton and he would line up the wall at what we would call the turf where all the hood hung out with with 40 uh, bottles of 40 old Englishes and then open his trunk and sell mixtapes. I mean, like that was like that hustle pre-social media days where people were connected. Do you think that hustle is lost now where with social media it's just changing the digital download where people aren't going to the Tower Records or aren't out really hustling? Yeah, I mean, there, there are no more stores like that. I mean, I started out hustling mixtapes in the Bay also. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that kind of the, the epicenter of mixtapes was New York, like Canal Street and Jamaica Ave and everything else like that. But yeah, the, the out the trunk, independent, nothing's cleared, <laughs> make your own artwork, <laughs> hope you don't get sued, hope the feds don't run up on you and seize everything. That's just some Bay Area shit. But these days you can't do that anymore. So people transition to other stuff. And there's still prominent Bay Area artists, but it's not quite as big as it used to be. So then you moved to New York and you were on your- 2002, yeah. And then you were sleeping on your uh, friend's couch, which is an intersection between you and I, because that's what I did prior to really figuring out what I wanted to do. Because there is that time where, I think when people look at us, they see all the success now, but don't know, like it comes with a journey of where we had to sacrifice a lot of things, maybe live in a way that we, hopefully there are no videos or photos that will surface, but you know, we did what we had to do to follow our dreams. Yeah. Um, Where did you find the courage to do that? To move to New York? To, to move to New York, sleep on somebody's couch, um, and just know that like you're, you're struggling to make it, but you're pursuing something that you're really passionate about. I mean, life has chapters. 
right? And there are certain things that are age appropriate. So I was 29 at the time, and I've always wanted to do hip hop and wanted to be a serious part of the culture. And I knew that this was the last time I would seriously be able to do it. You could be an aspiring DJ at 29. You can't be an aspiring DJ at 49. <laughs> no one will take you seriously, right? So you could be a legendary DJ at 49. Mm -hmm. You could be a legendary DJ at 69. Mm -hmm. But you can't be starting out at 49. Right. So I'm like, look, if I want to do this, this is sort of the last time I could seriously do it. I love DJing. I love doing mixtapes. Let me take a stab at it. Let me move out there and really put my all into it. No full-time job. Let me do this from day until night. I stopped smoking weed. You know, it was just all-consuming. All and uh, it started to slowly work out. I started to drop mixtapes that started to really make a lot of noise. It was this biggie mixtape called Rap Phenomenon. Uh, that I did with uh, DJ Dirty Harry, who was Nas's DJ at the time. That got a lot of a lot of attention. Double XL and MTV started, you know, covering it. And then we did something called a uh, Tupac Rap Phenomenon Part Two, where Green Lantern, who was Eminem's DJ, he came in, and it was almost like an album where you had Tupac verses, but we had like Alicia Keys do something, Jadakiss, Wyclef. And this was before they were even known. No, they were all known at the time. These were all major artists uh -huh. at the time. But we we had, you know, Bun B, we all pulled in our relationships to have them do verses to create this sort of album. And that one mixtape of the year at Just Those Mixtape Awards. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm creating art that hip-hop is really responding and reacting to. And I think I could actually turn this into a real career. And so is that when you realize that, okay, I got something here and now I'm going to keep going? Because there was a moment where you went from doing that and transitioned to what you're doing now. Yeah. So that was cool, and getting a lot of attention to mixtapes was fun, and it got me a lot of overseas gigs. So suddenly I'm touring in Australia and Japan and Europe and the Middle East and all over America, and it was cool, but it wasn't really a lot of money, and mixtapes, you know, CDs were going away, and the mom and pop stores, you know, because it's not really legally licensed material. Um, the, the little mom and pop stores were going away. So it was like, okay, I'm getting older now. I'm now in my early 30s. What am I going to do next? And it was like, well, let me try the visual part of it. Let me try DVDs. Um, me and Game actually did the first uh, DVD project that I did. It was called The Devil's Advocate. It was me, Game, and this guy, New Jersey Devil, who was part of his crew. That was the first time I picked up a video camera and started recording people, and I put it out. And it was like, it got a big reaction. I'm like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm onto something here. A little bit later, I did a uh, documentary called Ghost Ride the Whip. Right. But that's where you went back to your West Coast roots. Exactly. Yeah. So that was like my first real documentary project. And then I also did uh, Mac Dre's um, American Gangster episode. Mm -hmm. And all that was cool, but there was really no money there. Mm -hmm. You get a, you know an upfront check and then they would say they never recouped. So when you started the journey of being a DJ and now you're touring the world, which a lot of people want to tour the world, but you're not making the money. Right. When you got into it, it sounds like your passion for the culture and their passion for hip hop was the culture, the hip hop, the music, yeah. right? At what point did you go from like, I love this passion to like, I really need the money too? Well, I've always needed the money. Okay. I, I was always focused on money. I went to UC Berkeley. I had a computer science degree. Uh, you know, before I transitioned full-time to the hip-hop thing, I had, you know, I was first a programmer, then I had my own technical recruiting company, which did really well, and then the dot-com crash wiped it out. Mm. So I had to sell my house. I had to get rid of my drop-top bins. I had to, 
you know, I had nothing. I was actually in debt because I owed taxes. And I'm like, okay, I could either pay my taxes and be dead broke, or I could not pay my taxes and live off this money for the next year and try. And, and that's when I started to DJ during that time, really off borrowed money mm. in a way. Uh, but I was used to, you know, I've always wanted to be financially well off. I, I never wanted to be a struggling artist. So the aspiration wasn't always just the music and the culture. It was how to make it a business as well. It was, it was always the business. Okay. It was, but you know, but for ten years it, it wasn't there. The money just wasn't there, and I was trying to figure it out. This is, you know, you you try mixtapes, you try DVDs, you try DJing, you try this, you try that. You you know, you try documentaries, and nothing's really clicking until YouTube came around with a partner program, and I'm like, ah, this is what I've been waiting for. And a lot of times it's like. The, the timing is so important because you could be great at something, but it might not be the time for that to really react. But if you keep doing it, eventually something will probably come around and everything will click into place. So essentially what I was doing in DVDs and the relationships I had in hip hop, it all culminated with YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I just saw like, okay, this is going to be bigger than television. I saw the vision right away. No one around me really saw it. People thought I was wasting my time. But at that point, in 2008 when YouTube had his partner program and one of the guys that was working at YouTube was a fan of my mixtapes, so he kind of fast-tracked me onto that system really quickly. I just said, okay, this is it. No more mixtapes, no more hostings, no more touring, no more DJing, no more DVDs, like this is it. I'm just gonna focus 100% And you put everything this. into that? I put everything into that, yeah. And you won. And I won, <laughs> ultimately, but I could have lost. You know, YouTube could have shut down three years later. But, now, now most people, when they get in the game, they look at that thing they want to do and they put their blinders on, which a lot of us have to do to focus, but then they get blinded by the fact that you have to pivot and be able to pivot in this industry. What you just said is your career and your path to success required you the ability to see everything and be able to pivot. Why do you think some people fail to get that? The thing about success is that it's almost more important to know when to quit than to know when not to quit. Because there's gonna be a lot of stuff that you do that you need to quit at. Mm. Everybody, damn, not, not people, you, Damn, just glad everybody. nobody says that, really? Yeah, there's gonna be a lot of stuff you do that you're just gonna be mediocre at or it's just not the right time or whatever else. I've quit at a lot of things, mm. a lot of things. I've had probably like 40 jobs during the course of my life, all different types of things. And to know when, okay, I am not going to be the best in the world at this type of thing. And I feel like everyone has the potential to be one of the best in the world at something, whatever that may be. And to know that I'm just gonna be mediocre, middle, middle of the road on this, it's probably time to just throw in the towel and just go in a totally different direction. I mean, you, you see lots of rappers out there that are in their 40s and 50s that are still trying to mm -hmm. get that first hit, trying to, okay, I'm just gonna keep at it, when they should have stopped 20 years ago and just pivoted to do right, something right, else. Right. Maybe do management, maybe find that next hot artist, maybe be an A&R. Maybe start a label, maybe do whatever, maybe be producers, but, but they don't because they're, they're hard-headed and they feel like, oh, I'm not going to quit, but they should quit. So, so a lot of it is just quitting until you find what it is that you don't want to quit at. Like with me, like I said, I tried rapping, I sucked. I tried graffiti, I sucked. I tried producing, I was just okay. Don't forget but, you were dancing. I was breakdancing, I was, I was okay. Y'all got that video. I was okay, I was okay, I was breakdancing, but I wasn't as good as like crazy legs in there, yeah. right? I could never windmill. Um, I was just okay. But then when I DJed, I'm like, oh, the first time I jumped on some turntables, the first day I was like, I just got it. Now, were you live DJing or were you like pre-recorded set DJing? Well, well, I was just by myself. I, I just moved into a new apartment in Emeryville and um, 
a DJ I knew named DJ Poison had DJed the party. He left his equipment there and he's like, I'm going to come back tomorrow morning and pick him up. So in the morning, there was no one there. I just started fucking around and I'm like, oh, I know how to do this. This is easy because I had been producing. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, I understood how music fit together. And once I sort of got the, the hand, hand-eye coordination to it, I'm like, I recorded a live mixtape that first night, that first morning, actually. Wow. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually good at this. So let me just focus on this. And like I said, within a couple of years, I was winning mixtape of the year. You know, That's I got crazy. the trophies and everything. Like out of all the mixtapes that came out, we had the mixtape of the year. That's not something I would have done in producing or breakdancing or rapping or anything else like that. And it's like, okay, I'm going to stick with this. But unfortunately, the money wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I had to, once again, I had to pivot again. When you look at somebody like a blue face, and this is where I will give him his credit. I mean, he on the show talked about how he had reached a level of success as a rapper and wasn't happy and just felt like he didn't want to keep doing that. So he started focusing on building up these other careers. Jaden now with Barbie, yeah. which is doing well. And then Krishan, who's, who has some motion. I mean, like, do you, do you, is that what you're talking about? Somebody yeah. like that? Yeah. You, you gotta, you gotta figure out what it is that you're great at. And then you have to really just go overboard with it. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And and sometimes it, it means to pivot. If, if you would have asked me, because I, I was such a hip hop fan when it came to media, like every double XL issue, every source issue, uh, rap pages, like whatever magazine I can get my hands on. What about Word Up magazine? No. You didn't like Word Up? No, nah, that was more of a kind of a teeny bopper oh, kind no, of magazine. That was my thing. <laughs> that was more like that, was, that gay magazine. Like, that was, you know, that, that was like, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, no, I'm keeping it 100. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but I would read these things from front to back. If you were to ask me back then that, that I would have a media outlet that's bigger than all these put together, I, I think it's just silly mm-hmm. because the source was the hip hop Bible. Five mics and the source was a huge deal. It would give you damn near a platinum record. Being an unsigned hype guaranteed you a major label deal. Like th- these were big, big, important entities. And to think that I could build something on my own bigger than that was a little crazy. But then life has its own twists and turns. And once the opportunity presented itself with YouTube, because I was already doing interviews on DVDs and kind of putting them out myself and, and so forth. But it's like, yo, I could actually do what I'm doing on YouTube. I don't have to press up these DVDs. I don't have to do artwork. I don't have to manufacture. I could own everything. Uh, and then when other outlets pick up my interviews, I could then monetize through those other outlets mm-hmm. by when they embed my YouTube. And I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for, for all these years. Vlad is the best at protecting his assets. Vlad is the only person that will text me if that clip we post is too long to say, take that shit down. Right. And it gets taken down immediately. And you yeah. know, because I don't think people think about it. I know I talk to my team about it because I don't post on social, but they do. Like IP and protecting that and making sure to, you know, post the clickbait content to drive them back, but the post is to drive them back to you. Right. Right. Um, how important is preserving? And a lot of the conversations we're having is for all of you aspirational people out there who look at Vlad, who look at me, who see what we've been able to do. Both of us starting in our, our later 30s, really having, we're well, having the success in our later 30s, um, showing you that it's possible, right? And these are all gems that, you know, you're not paying for, but you're giving us the click, so we love it. Um, how important is it protecting the IP when you own that content and making sure that your partners who, you know, maybe uh, competitors are collaborating or, you know, sharing your content for their purposes, but also helping you? Look, we spent millions of dollars creating this content, you know, between all the costs involved. Like, this is not just a hobby. I'm not just, I don't have an Instagram page where I'm ripping other people's content and putting it up and throwing my logo on it and trying to get 
Fashion Nova ads eventually. This is not this is not that type of thing. <laughs> that is shady as hell, yo. I mean, we actually because created, there are shortcuts to success with they, lots there of are. big there, consequences. There, are. Too. there are exactly like we actually created from scratch. We have twenty employees. We have multiple studios. We have appearance fees. We have talent coordinators that we pay. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's CFOs. There's there's lawyers. It's a real business. It's a real business that costs a lot of money. So when you go and go through all this effort, and suddenly you see your content on someone else's Instagram page, and the logo's cut off, and this giant logo is there, and people, you know. The argument's like, oh, I'm just promoting you. Like, you're not promoting me. I never ask you to promote me. Like, everyone who puts up our stuff, we usually have a relationship with, and there's an understanding. Like, you and I have a relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes when it gets posted improperly, I'll just hit you like, hey, can you just take this down or modify it? But, you know, academics, um, you know, but even like a world star, they'll hit me. They're like, hey, can we post this? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And we all respect that. Yeah, World Star has changed a lot since Q passed. Yeah, since Q passed. And, rest in peace. Uh, the way that, yeah, rest in peace, Q was amazing. And the business changed. They just posted my shit and didn't credit me. I need to send y'all a this. I need to talk to y'all. But, you know, I'd be talking to Ed and them over there to say, hey, like, you know, there is proper etiquette in how we handle each other's content for these various reasons. Yeah, man. I mean, it's important content. And, I mean, the, the problem a lot of times is that people think that when you go viral, there's like a million-dollar check that <laughs> falls in your bank account. And we go viral you know, every other month, essentially. And a lot of times we don't profit from that. Mm -hmm. There'll be some TikTok page with 3 million views that doesn't go back to our, and the original YouTube video will have like 30,000 views. Mm -hmm. You know, there'll be a, a, a Twitter account with millions of views. There'll be an Instagram account with millions of views. And it's like, yeah, it's cool to have the promotion and everything else like that, but ultimately it's a business. So if what we do, these projects, these interviews are not profitable, the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. And at the level that we do it at, you know, we're literally filming almost every day. We're putting out 10, 12, 15 clips a day, 365 days a year. It's a machine, it's a conveyor belt. And when things go awry, you could have this very expensive interview, this very expensive project that loses money. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, well, what are we doing it for? I mean, now it could lose money because no one cares because it's just not very good content. But when it loses money because people are stealing your content, it's a different, it's a different situation. It has to be handled. So, yeah, we copyright strike. There's been a lot of pages that got shut down because of it. And it just is what it is. It is what it is. And the importance of making the money or using the business that you've built and protecting the IP and the clips to make money versus going viral, how hard is it for people to understand that part, that it's not just about going viral, it's about making money? I mean, people that are worried about going viral and that's all they're worried about probably don't have a real business. Is that why you fired Gloria Velez? I didn't fire Gloria Velez. She actually quit. You did? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I'll tell you the whole story. Wait, before you do, let me give you a round of applause for allowing her to quit. Um, listen, I have a real relationship with Vlad, okay? Just to be very clear, this is my friend. I called Vlad because Vlad is not always on camera. Those of you that get to the level of success where he is, I'm, I'm trying to get there. I'm almost there, right? I'm, I got more work to do. You want to get off the camera. You want to put other people in front so they can step up. They can be the stars that they want to be or aspire to be. Um, and you want to give them your platform. You have billions of views, over, over 5 billion views, um, millions and millions of followers. So like your, just to put in perspective, your YouTube channel, 
which those of you that you use YouTube to post bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, God bless you. When you have five million people in your network, or that go that have that take the content that's shareable, then just, I mean, the the fans are your marketing engine, right? Um, he's built this community. And so when you want to give opportunities to people, because you have people that will come in and do interviews behind the camera so we don't hear your voice. By the way, I don't know how you order food online with your voice because everybody knows it. And then you have people that want to step out and be on camera. Mm -hmm. This on-camera shit is a tough thing. It's hard. Even yeah. though we make it look easy. So yeah. he hires Gloria Valerio. He does some deal with her. I'm going to let him tell it. So he brings her in. I heard of her in videos. I don't really watch videos. Y'all know I'm gay. I don't look for the girls, right? So I see Gloria Velez doing these interviews, and they're going viral. They're going viral because it's on Vlad's platform. She interviews Neo. Y'all know I was friends with Neo. Mm -hmm. Has this whole moment where they're talking about the trans and the kids and this and that. I'm in Miami, just now feeling it. I call Vlad. We have a moment on the phone, the most respectful conversation mm -hmm. ever. Me and Vlad exchange. I'm pissed. He's listening to me, you know, very calm, whatever. And But we're having a respectful conversation because Gloria has asked this these questions where I feel like she was gaslighting and she was very much living in transphobia and I have such a respect for the Vlad brand and uh, that was a moment. Um, you know, Neil doesn't really care for me as much anymore and Gloria hasn't responded but how did that relationship come together where you said I'm going to give you a chance to step out in front of my audience and although it was short-lived how did it come together? And what the, the first photo shoot I ever did, which was with Source Magazine in 2002, Gloria was there mm -hmm. as like the eye candy of the shoot. It was a bunch of DJs. It was like me, um, uh, DJ Ferris, uh, Lazy K, and one or two others I don't remember. So she was there. We, I think we briefly met. You know, we ran to each other in Miami once. You know, we, we knew who each other, you know, we knew each other. We didn't have a relationship or a friendship or anything, but we knew, we knew each other, right? So uh, my man, Mafi, he does a lot of booking for the show. Um, Shout out to Mafi. He's yeah. really, he, yeah, that's he my rides man. for you. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He does. So, so he brings ideas to me. He not only brings guests, but sometimes he brings ideas. And the idea was, hey, listen, I've been talking to Gloria. She wants to do this podcast and she has all these relationships with different artists and she could bring the guests. And I'm like... Sounds like an interesting idea. Let's let's, you know, see if it could work. She lives in Miami, so so we had a deal where um, she would get paid per interview. Amafi would get paid as well. Um, she would be responsible for bringing the guests, but I'd have to okay the guests because mm -hmm. I know what works for my platform. Yep. We would we got the studio, the camera people. We would put it out, and you know we would own the content that we shot. But the Glory of the Last podcast was owned by her, and I always said like. At any point, if you want to leave, go for it. Well, Wait, so she would build it on your platform yeah. and own it and can leave? Well, she would own her brand. She would own her brand. But right. I would, the interviews we would own because we're paying Got it. to produce them. But in right? essence, she could have built it up, 50 interviews, the Gloria Velez podcast, and left and owned it. Yes. She could have went a, on and got a deal with someone else and would have her new content. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good deal. Yeah, and I also said that if you want to get any sort of advertising or sponsorships, you could have all that. That's all you. We're only worried about what's on the YouTube channel and maybe Facebook. And we'll cover all the costs. We'll pay you. And, you know, I thought that was a pretty good deal. That's a damn good deal. Yeah. But why? 
That's just how we rock with people. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about content for the channel. She had good relationships. She brought in some good guests. So the first guest was Cisco. And I'm like, okay, I've interviewed Cisco before, but he's a you know, prominent R&B guy, you know, one of the legendary, you know, Drew Hill and everything else like that. I'm like, dope. Uh, you know, the next one was TK Kirkland. He's already a guest on my show, but he agreed to do her show. Cool, we like it. And then the third guest was Neo. Yeah. Neo came in. And, you know, did his thing. Like I said, the whole comment about trans kids started to go viral. The reality is, though, all three of those episodes lost money. Mm. That's just what it is. Once you count all the, you know, paying everybody, covering, you know, I mean, it's expensive to shoot Miami with multiple cameras, plus all the editing and everything else like that. If you look at, you know, each interview got a few hundred thousand views combined, which, as you know, on YouTube is just not a lot of money. It's not getting five, six, ten million, or else it would have been really profitable. Which is what all your other clips do. Which is what most of our other clips do, exactly. But, you know, it was like, all right, she's just starting. I would try to give her direction as to what type of questions to ask. And a lot of times she would kind of go off on her own tangents. And it's like, all right, you're still new. You're still learning over time. We'll we'll try to figure it out. She brought a lot of ideas for guests that I would turn down, like, you know, mob wives and reality show stars. And it's like, that's not really our thing. That, that's stuff for Word Up Magazine. Yeah, it's Word Up Magazine. It's not Vlad TV. We have a, a primarily male-oriented audience. Um, but what I love is, and just if I can interject, is you've worked, people may say over the last, what century, 35, but you, over the decades of building credibility in the space of hip-hop, doing the work. When you study and build an audience, like, you know them. Like, yeah. you could almost say, like, I can feed them this and they're going to want exactly. it. Exactly. But if I feed them that, they're not. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I understand that and other people don't. But, look, <clears throat> you know, we had three guests and then she was also, like, she pitched Trina and I'm like, yeah, good idea. She pitched Shaq. I'm like, oh, excellent idea. Shaq would be great. And then um, I remember Mafi came in. And he was like, what about Math Hoffa? And I'm like, well, I already have him scheduled. I'm on my way to New York. Math has been a guest on my show a bunch of times. I've been on his show. We actually have a real friendship. And I've actually already booked him because I'm, I'm planning to come to New York next week. So when he told her, she was like, somehow took it as I took her idea and, and somehow took, her, took the guest idea or something strange like that. So next thing I know, there's a video that she does calling me shady and saying that she has all these videos that did really well, and you know, I, I somehow did her dirty, and now she's she's gone, and she's you know she's got all these offers from all these other big outlets, and who should she go with? <clears throat> so I saw this, so I'm like, well, I got her phone number. Let me call her. No answer. Text her. Call me. No answer. So I'm like, okay, look, this whole math Hoffa thing. Let me show you the actual text messages <laughs> and the timestamps, the receipts, the receipts. People. <laughs> no answer. So I'm like, okay, now I'm done. Because ultimately I lost money on all three episodes. Mm -hmm. And although she said, oh, I had these interviews that did well, it appeared that some of them did well, like the Neo one, because it did go viral on certain platforms. But if you look at the views, they weren't there. Mm -hmm. They didn't come back and watch the YouTube videos for whatever reason. So we were done. And Ever since then, she hasn't done anything. Well, I know what she said that you didn't let her grow. And what people don't realize is, you know, yes, you have a platform, I have a platform, and we'll incubate ideas, yes. but we're not a incubate forever platform. Right, and, but here's the thing, though, right? What I said during that time was, Gloria Velez podcast is, you own that. So if you want to, you know, interview one of the mob wives, shoot it yourself. 
And she could have aired that and put it And put it out on your own platform. Put it on your own YouTube channel, your own Instagram. I'm not stopping you. But she didn't want to do that. She wanted me to pay for it. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay for something that's going to lose money. So, I don't know. It, it, it just... You don't start a job and quit after three days. <laughs> you know right, what I'm right. saying? Like, now when the person's like, I'm going to keep employing you. So, once she quit, that was that. The but, end. But both that interview and the TK Kirkland interview, because I did sound off about both, and TK did reach out to me, which I will say thank you, TK. We didn't get a chance to talk on the phone, but you did reach out, and she did not. I mean, I really felt like, from my optics, being a gay man, watching and having had lots of conversations with different transsexual people on my show and in the real world, felt like she was peddling homophobia or transphobia. Did you have conversations with her about the feedback that I gave you or that other people were given about that? Or was it pretty much she had the free reign to do what she wanted to do? I wasn't really talking to her that much. That was really Mafi's thing. Okay. You see what I'm saying? She, he was sort of the buffer between both of us. Me and her, I had one or two conversations. So I had her phone number, but we didn't really talk about that. Um, Gloria Velez has her own ideas when it comes to you know, trans people and, and, and gay people and stuff like that. I don't necessarily agree with all of them. And, you know, some of the stuff I do agree with, some of the stuff I don't. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I, I wasn't involved in that interview. I wasn't involved in the questions. Like that whole trans kids question, I didn't, I didn't provide that mm-hmm. question. That was something that her and Neo just sort of organically came up with. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it just sort of was what it was. Mm-hmm. And I know you called me up and I, I told you my whole thing. You know, I, I said, listen, um, this wasn't my interview, but... Ultimately, I feel like an eight-year-old kid saying that he wants to be trans, I think is a little bit too young. Mm-hmm. You know, you should live a little bit more and, you know, kind of learn to, you know, once you turn 18 or whatever else, do whatever you want mm-hmm. as an adult, you know? Yeah, and I also, though, like in the same breath, you did say if I felt offended or you felt like, if I felt like it was too much, you would have a conversation with me. So I just want to thank you for that. And, you know, and this was what I was trying to say. And, you know, I look back and maybe... Putting Neo on blast wasn't the right thing to do. I was in my feelings. I'm sorry, Neo, but not sorry about how I feel. Um, you know, um, I think that how people choose to raise their kids is their right. Exactly. Whatever you choose to say to your child or raise your child, what you like or don't like, what you believe is fair or not fair. You know, I'm gay, but if my son wanted to put on a dress at eight, I'd probably say, take that damn dress off. You're not wearing a dress. You know, that's my choice. And people can say that's wrong or not, but nobody gets to police. And a lot of people feel like they're now policing everybody else's children. So I get right. that. Exactly. Do you, and, and I don't think that there's any case where a person has allowed a child to transition under 18 because it's illegal. And people don't understand the process of going through transitioning that, you know, there's a lack of awareness that that's not even possible. When you see the conversation happening online where with social media now it's getting louder, people wanting to be in conversations like Dwayne Wade's daughter transitioning, what do you feel about people participating in that conversation about other people's children? I think that if you choose to put your family on social media, you have to take whatever comes with it. Mm. If you really don't want people's opinion, you could keep that private. Mm -hmm. There's no law that says you have to put your kids or your wife or your husband or your boyfriend, girlfriend, lover, or whatever else to make it Instagram official. That's just something people want to do. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, then you open the door to the whole world commenting about it. Mm. So Dwayne Wade went on a whole media run about his daughter being transgender and so forth. So ultimately, 
him and his daughter and Gabriel Union and his other kids and his daughter's mom and, and everything else like that now have to deal with everyone's opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality. It's not my opinion. It's this is what happens when you do that. So if you really are very protective of something, you should just keep it close to you. Mm -hmm. And that's that. Mm -hmm. And Vlad and I were talking off camera about how private you are with your personal life, and I'm starting to become more per, uh, private. How important is protecting your privacy if you don't want people talking about it? It's extremely important. And it's possible. Yeah, it's extremely important. It, it's, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. It's not required. You know, just because, you know, people don't know who you're sleeping with does not mean you're not sleeping with anybody. Right. You know, I, I couldn't imagine... I mean, uh, Lori Harvey and uh, what, what's her? Dam Dam uh, Damson Interest or her mom? Yeah, Damson. Damson. Yes. Yeah, I always mess up his name. Yes. The fact that they have Just to do think about it like this. You lost Lori. Damn, son. <laughs> yeah. The fact that both of them had to do a press release that they broke up. A joint up, press release. A joint press release just seems so ridiculous. Yeah. Like, okay, we don't want to have sex anymore. Let's make a public statement to let the world know that we're not having sex anymore. Isn't that just ridiculous? It's ridiculous. Like, I can just imagine my various relationships. Like, okay, um, <laughs> I don't want to sleep with you anymore. How should we word it? Right. Like, what, what's, <laughs> the, what's the sign-off process? Yeah, what's the sign-off process? Like, it seems so silly. I think about all the relationships throughout my life. Imagine having to go through that every time. It's just crazy. But here's me. the deal. You don't say who you're sleeping with, and you're the 50-year-old virgin. I don't say yeah. who I'm sleeping with, and I'm a hoe that flies everybody out. <laughs> like, how, how do I... Get to a place to where when I nobody sees me with anybody, I'm just chilling yeah. and, and, and a virgin. I, I want to be a virgin. How can I get that level of peace? Privacy, man. Yeah. You don't parade everyone around. Yeah. That's it. And if the person respects you and loves you, then they're going to go along with that. Mm -hmm. They're going to understand that. Now, if they're just with you so they could get on, yeah. then that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. They're going to be like, nah, no, nah, I, I want to Instagram this. Are you ashamed of me? And they'll guilt you in it or whatever else. And it's... I may not be the right person for you. Okay, so Vlad's wearing Louis Vuitton down to the socks. It's real subtle richness. It's not giving <laughs> the loud, broken real life, but rich online look that a lot of us tend to do. Um, do you like designer wear? Have you always wore designer? I mean, I've always liked designer, but I've always kind of acted my wage. So when I was broke, <laughs> you know, when I was broke, I wouldn't wear anything because I couldn't afford it. Mm. You know, I remember... Whew. Uh, you know, because I was successful before I became a DJ. And I remember, my, you know, coming out of uh, college, I bought a uh, Rolex watch. It was, you know, a Datejust, a very simple bottom of the line Rolex watch. And I still had it. I didn't lose it, you know, during the time I went broke. But for years, I would never wear it because why would I go outside wearing a Rolex when I'm broke? Mm -hmm. it, just, it just felt like I was fronting. Mm -hmm. So, but once I started to really get money where buying designer clothes had no effect on my finances, I started buying what I liked. Mm -hmm. And I started just, you know, exploring these brands. And, you know, I'm a, I love Louis Vuitton. I love Gucci. I love Burberry. It's probably what I wear the most of. Um, Goyard is probably my favorite brand right now. Mm -hmm. um, but all this stuff, I only did it because buying it had zero effect on my finances. Mm -hmm. I would never buy something and, and have to, you know, not be able to pay my 
you know, my employees or something because right. I bought a Gucci jacket or something right. like that. Well, when you look at your evolution to hip hop and having started in the East or started in the Bay, transitioned across the country to New York, which by the way, very different culturally in terms of music and stuff. And you look at the evolution of hip hop figureheads in fashion. Is it become more commercialized now? Because I don't remember the E-40s and the Spice Ones and the Tupacs back then really wearing super designer and everything. As now, you see like Pharrell's the face of a creative director at Louis Vuitton. ASAP Rocky has this hype beast about him. Kanye West wants to design the world. You know, it, where did the evolution of that happen in your opinion? I think that fashion took hip hop more seriously. You know, before you kind of had these, you know, hip hop brands that would come and go like a FUBU or a Nietzsche and so forth. And it would be hot, super hot for a couple of years. And then it would just go out of business. And I think that the staying power of some of these artists, you know, proving that, you know, kids really want to dress like them. You know, like Kanye was a fashion icon for a long time. I mean, no one really wants to dress like Kanye right now, you know, for the last few years. I mean, just to be honest, <laughs> you know, once you start wearing all that black, like weird, you know, those boots and, and all that shit. Like, yeah, I don't know. But the fly Kanye was like, yo, like here was like a hip hop dude that was wearing polos and Louie and, you know, he had the hot Jordans. Was that college dropout? The college era? dropout mm -hmm. Kanye was like, yo, this dude is fly. And, you know, the Yeezys, the, the, the Nike Yeezys were a, a phenomenon. And then people were like, oh, you know, he's not going to do it at Adidas. And he did it at Adidas. Mm -hmm. So once people saw that, okay, this is not just a fly by night kind of thing, then I think the brand started to really embrace them and take it seriously. And I think that Virgil becoming the creative director at Louis Vuitton was what really broke the glass ceiling of With it With hip hop being able to yes. cross over into- Here was a hip hop guy. High fashion. My man, John Monopoly, you know, used to be his intern. Shout out to John. Yeah. That suddenly is the male creative director at, L, you know, at Louis Vuitton, one of the most, you know, sought after brands on the planet. And at that point you couldn't say anything. And that's what opened the door to Pharrell doing mm -hmm. that now. Mm -hmm. When you look at, did you, have you ever interviewed Kanye? Yes, actually before it was just an audio interview uh, before Vlad TV. Mm -hmm. I don't even have the interview anymore. I want to yeah, once. I want to know your thoughts. Uh, I never ask people what they think about my interviews because some of them are good and some of them are not good, but I interviewed Kanye. Did you yeah, see it? I watched it. What did you think? Because we I mean, didn't prepare, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I think Kanye fucks with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that you guys had a really good organic conversation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that started the relationship that you guys had that lasted a certain certain amount of time and then didn't last. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought it was a good interview. Um, you know, Kanye actually, during the whole anti-Semitic thing, had actually reached out to us to do an interview with us. That would have been iconic. Would have been interesting. It would have <laughs> been interesting. Because it was like... You know, because I'm Jewish, so I was not... The plan was to really just steer away from all the Hitler shit. Mm -hmm. Just to just focus on his career and his music and the fashion and whatever. The stuff that we loved him for. This probably wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, and if it went into that direction, it probably would have started going left field. But the idea was, let's do the Kanye interview that people really want to see. Mm -hmm. Not this bullshit that he's been doing. But unfortunately, he did that Proud Boys interview mm -hmm. that same week. And that, that went off really badly, so he just canceled all the interviews. When you look at what Kanye was uh, going through in the media during the time where he was addressing uh, the Jewish community and mm -hmm. issues that he had with the Jewish community, um, 
what did you make of it? Because there are a lot of people that would look at what he said, and I, I will say I haven't been on the inside. I look at every culture and every marginalized group of people as people that have gone through stuff, right? You can't look at the Jewish community and not empathize with the fact that you all endured one of the craziest experiences on the planet, right? Um, and when you look at the Holocaust and the amount of people that died, there's just, I mean, I, how you don't acknowledge that and how you don't empathize and make a connection between what you all experienced versus what black people experienced with slavery. I mean, we've all been through it. So I never understand why those groups don't see each other's struggle or, or perseverance or survival, yeah. whatever. When, when you saw what he was or how he was addressing uh, the perception that some black people may have that, you know, the Jewish community seems to be this power construct um, or that there's this inferiority to the Jewish community. When you saw him addressing that, what did you think? That was lame. I thought it was lame. And I think that trying to make general statements about a group of people that are not all like huddling together. And, you know, I've never gone to these Jewish meetings, these Jewish Illuminati meetings and so forth. Like, I don't even really work within the Jewish community. I had a bar mitzvah because my grandparents wanted one, but really I didn't grow up around Jewish people outside of my immediate family. I don't really have a lot of Jewish friends. Uh, you know, I don't go to a synagogue. I don't, I don't do this, but I was born Jewish. And we had to move out of Russia because I was Jewish because our family were being persecuted in Russia. Like my, my family knew that I would have a fucked up life living in what used to be the USSR, it's the Ukraine now, as a Jewish person because they went through it as Jewish people. So... You know, to have them say all Jews this, all Jews that, get over Hitler, you should forgive them, and everything else like that. If you say that about any group of people, it sounds just as ignorant. Mm -hmm. Just, just sounds just as ignorant if you say it about Black people, Asian people, Indian people, Muslim people, whoever else. So, I don't know. But Kanye is going to be Kanye, and you're not going to tell Kanye what to do. But the world kind of told him what to do. He got can he got can but do you think he got canceled? I mean, he lost the Adidas deal. That was big. Gap deal. Lost the gap deal. Um, I mean, lost a lot of the corporate deals. I think that he messed up in terms of corporations. I think the corporations probably don't want to fuck with him at this point. But I mean, look what he was doing with Adidas. He was playing porn videos to the executives and putting it out. And you know, just really just wild, erratic type of stuff. But, but this is not just with Adidas. Remember, he just he quit his whole worldwide tour on stage. Mm -hmm. We thought we, he was joking, but he really quit. Think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that were lost because he had a temper tantrum on stage mm -hmm. and really decided to go, go through with it. Mm -hmm. So I think that in terms of corporations, he's going to have a very hard time for the rest of his life. But he still has fans. He could still fill a stadium. He could still put out music that people will listen to. He could still probably put out fashion through other means, independently or maybe smaller brands, you know, maybe manufacture it through other means that people will still rock with. But it's going to be very hard to get back to where he was before, which is not only having a big fan base, but having the corporations really want to be in bed with him. Mm -hmm. I think that's a hard thing. Remember, he showed up at Skechers. They kicked him out. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Sketchers. Sketchers. Embarrassing. Yeah. So so I think corporations, they don't give a shit about any particular individual, whether it's Kanye or LeBron 
or uh, Messi or whoever else. Ultimately, the brand is more important than one particular person because the brand will last past the lifetime of that person. So the CEO is thinking about that. Mm -hmm. It's thinking 20, 30, 50 years ahead. So even though they're making a lot of money with this person, if they're ultimately sinking the brand, then they have to make the hard decision to let that person go. Why do you think the corporations who make those hard decisions were quick to make that decision when he said the anti-Semitic stuff, but not when he was pictured with Candace Owens? Because the White Lives Matter, in my opinion, it was all Yeah, it was lame. Lame. Well, I mean, the George Floyd comments were lame. George Floyd died of fentanyl. I think there's a certain degree of, there's passes that, will, that people give you in life when you're talking about your own people. Mm -hmm. Right? If I criticize Jewish people, which I have, if you watch like my Breakfast Club appearance, mm -hmm. like I say I don't like Netanyahu. I don't like some of the stuff that Israel has done. I also don't like the, the stuff that Hamas has done. But I could speak about Jews and speak about the problems in the Jewish community, or I could speak about Russians, let's say. You know, I've criticized Putin. Mm -hmm. I probably can't go back to Russia now because of my Variety magazine interview. So you could say certain things. You could talk about the gay community. Mm -hmm. I can't talk about the gay community the same way you can talk about the mess. gay community. You know it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So I think Kanye being black, talking about black people, saying slavery was a choice, was shocking and horrible. But since he's black, there's a different rule that comes with it. Mm. Now, when he's talking about other communities, whether that's right or wrong, I just think that's the way society mm -hmm. works. Do you think the Jewish community, you know, I had a friend who was Russian Jew. I didn't even know the difference between Russian Jew and Jew. What is the difference? But I will say I did go to a Russian Jewish meeting. It was over food. <laughs> and uh, what I will say is my experience was the way they worked as a community was amazing. You know, it was really about everybody was there looking at, uh, what do you need? Do you have this? Do you have this? And out of that meeting, I didn't have a car at the time. They gave me a, a seven 50 IBMW to get around and I was struggling trying to get around so like I will say like my interaction with the Russian Jewish folks and they were saying we're Russian Jews I didn't know the difference I'm just like y'all got a car just give it to me um what is there a different level of how they coordinate collaborate share commune uh, than some other cultures because some people will look if you look at the top of music fashion uh I mean everything studios the Jewish folks is up there I mean, look, uh, 2,000 years ago, the Romans came into uh, Israel, Jerusalem, and kicked all the Jews out. A bunch of them went into Europe and over time became white. A bunch of them went into different parts of Africa, the Middle East, and they became brown. Mm. So my family, you know, like I actually did a DNA test recently, and I had a bunch of Middle Eastern Bedouin blood in my DNA, you know, which to me, finally proved in my mind that I'm actually, what my family has been telling me this whole time has not been a lie. But my family came from that and ultimately settled through Eastern Europe. But in Russia, there's Russians and then there's Jews. And there's sort of a hard line between the two. Where they don't, you don't cross from, yeah. no mixing. There's not a lot of mixing. There's like, I remember my, my father, he told me this later in life, his first wife was Russian, wasn't Jewish. She used to live out in the country. She had never been around Jews, so it wasn't a big deal. But once they got married, they moved back into the city, into Kiev. And your father was Russian? My father was, was Jewish, Jewish okay. Russian Jew, right? Okay. So once he moved back you know, with her, when he'd be away at school or at work, the neighbors would be like, yo, why are you with that filthy Jew? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, 
how could you even like I can't even smell them like how could you sleep with this person you know this is just disgusting and over time she started listening to them and she divorced them my dad went through a really hard time lost some of his teeth during that process through stress and everything and that's the type of shit that would happen in Russia if you're Jewish you can't get certain jobs like I could look at a Russian person, I could tell the slight difference between a regular Russian and a Jewish Russian. The features are a little bit different. Like my hair is not straight. It's a little bit kinky. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's a little, it's like Jufro kind of kind of hair. See, I ain't, I ain't you know gonna say that. I ain't saying that. Yeah, I could say Jufro. Yeah. You can't say Jufro. I, you know, well, I don't care if you say it, but I'm saying like, But what you're saying that... Th- th- there is a distinction. We, we look a little bit different because... You know, and because of that, because of discrimination, a lot of Jewish people would just marry other Jewish people and everything else like that. So there is a distinction that other cultures don't quite pick up. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But in, in the community, it is there. But I didn't really grow up like that. Mm-hmm. Like the only Jewish people I really knew were my parents. I'm mm-hmm. an only child. So yeah, like it, it's one of those things. But before hip hop, before anything else like that, I knew I was Jewish. I knew I ended up in this country because I was Jewish. I knew that the type of foul stuff that people. I remember my my first real job at a, a pizza place. This, this that was my first job. I yeah. swear, to, I, I worked there at Eddie's. Pe- I'm telling you, we have Pete and D's Pizza. That was Eddie's my spot. Pizza. Eddie's Pizza, Pete and D's. I remember there was this guy that was from uh, this Greek guy that was from the Red Island, which is like a communist island uh, in Greece. And uh, I remember when he found out I was Jewish, he was like, oh, well, Hitler was right. Like, all y'all should have been killed. Like, and he would tell me this shit at work. And I was just like, I was like 13 at the time. So I was like listening to this grown ass man telling me I should be dead. And then I went home and cried and told my parents and they went to, to go confront him and he just denied it all. Mm-hmm. So I quit. And, um, you know, that's just the type of shit I would go through as a kid before hip hop, before mm-hmm. flat TV, before whatever else is going on these days. So it just runs deep with me mm-hmm. and, and I stand behind it. And it's sad seeing what's going on right now and how people are so free with the anti-Semitism. And it's also sad how people are so free with the anti-Palestinian stuff and everything else like that. Like both parties are at blame in terms of where we are right now. And this has been going on my whole life. And I've been to Israel. I've been to Palestine. I've met, you know, I had dinner with a Palestinian family. Mm-hmm. I had dinner with Israeli families. I've been to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv, to Sfat, like, you know, to the Dead Sea, all that type of stuff. And a lot of people, I think, that are talking and have these strong opinions, they've never even been over mm-hmm. there. So they don't quite understand it and how, how tricky it is. And that's why I wanted to have part of, part of this interview have that conversation too, because I think like as hearing you talk about the conversation your dad had about oh they smell or this or that. My mother's my mother was Greek and Italian. She's deceased now. Her mother was um, uh, uh, Italian. Her father was Greek. Uh, her mother was very racist. Did not understand why she was sleeping with black men. This is back in the '70s, so I'm a '77 baby. And used to always say to her like, "Why are you with these dirty niggers?" And then when I, I was born. You know, she used to say, you know, you you got these nigger grandbabies running around uh, my house. And and like I decided very early on that I would never hate people based on who they are. Like we have no control of our ethnicities or, you know, where we come from, our socioeconomic backgrounds. Like we all have a story. And so like hearing you say that and knowing like there's an intersection between what you've gone through, what I've gone through and people 
Do they dismiss it because they don't understand it, because they, they sit in where they sit, or because we're public figures and we must be emotionless trees that just make money off of everybody else's pain? Like, what is it that doesn't allow people to see, like, you were born in Ukraine, you're Russian, you're Jewish, Ukraine and Russia's in a whole ass war right now. Right. Um, and then on top of that, you're Jewish, interviewing the hip hop community who's somewhat silent on what's happening over there. And a lot of us don't really understand it because we haven't lived it. Right. Well, you know, I mean, they were somewhat silent. But remember, I was the one that was making noise about uh, Drake and Khaled not speaking up. No, you made a lot of noise. We don't get into yeah. that. And, and Drake finally you know, made a statement shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that. Um, I don't know, man. Being, being Jewish is a, is a weird thing because from the outside, we just look white. So we can blend in. So I think that there is a, a certain level of, you know, there's something to that because if someone's black, they can't hide being black. I could hide being Jewish. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I just happen to be vocal about it. But if I never said I was Jewish, you would think I'm just Russian mm -hmm. or just white. So I think there's that. It's, it's, you know, we are minorities, but we can kind of blend in and so forth. So I think there might be some animosity based on that, you know, but I, I can't help that. I'm, I wasn't involved, involved in my birthing process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is just the way I ended up. Um, so, unfortunately, it's, it's fucked up because I think that the, the Jewish community, the Jewish community, the black community has done some really dope shit. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had so much success with the black community. I feel like the black community has had so much success with me. Mm -hmm. I feel like I, I've covered so many important stories and brought up so many important figures that other, you know, black-owned media platforms have ignored. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like what? John Witherspoon's last interview. I mean, people like Tony Yayo, who's now a media personality, like he's been silent for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Vlad TV was the one that really kind of gave him kind of a boost. You know, TK Kirkland all the time says that, you know, once he started doing Vlad TV on a regular basis, like his bookings went up and everything else like that. Jason Weaver, he had an interview with me, um, you know, and it went very viral. It was about how he turned down like a million dollars or no, $2 million I to sit on The Lion King. Mm -hmm. And then instead his mom got a, a piece of that whole film. Well, and I saw a lot know? of those clips without uh, your branding on it. Yeah, but it's our shit. And, you know, he called me and said, like, yo, like, getting on the shy and, and some of these other important acting roles came because of that clip. Mm -hmm. Because that clip went so viral. Because you know how it is. It's like, we all have to, we all work with other entertainers, mm -hmm. whether it's for interviews or for movies or for music. And... Somehow, and a lot of times, just getting on the radar of someone who's looking to work with someone is immense. So suddenly, when you see this person in front of you all the time, he's going viral or she's going viral, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, I actually do have a job that I'm, let me reach out to this person. So time and time again, you can just look at my catalog. But um, do you think they discredit you because you're Jewish? I think everyone's going to get discredited, man. Like, it's but always you, but you, funny. You've done some iconic shit. Yeah, but, you know, like, it, it's always interesting, like, I remember when I put you on and seeing all the homophobic comments that people are making about you, it was like... Were they making homophobic comments? I'm going to go in your comments today. Were they really? <laughs> they were, yeah. Me? <laughs> I be forgetting I'm gay sometimes, y'all. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I got a lot of good... I mean, I got... Yeah. I get great feedback from your interview. Thank you. Man, but the comments are fucking shit. The comments man. are the comments. Just, but but what know. I'm saying is that like... Having a guest on and seeing 
their army of haters show up. Yeah. It's always interesting to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Number one, I'm not the only one. That makes me feel a little bit better <laughs> yeah. in a twisted type of way. But it's like, oh, okay. Like we all go through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason goes through it just a little different. You know, they, yeah. they, they bash him for being gay. I get bashed for being white. You know, uh, Adam gets bashed for having his wife sleep with a guy. Like, you know, I mean, yo, it, it just yo, it goes Adam, on and on. Yeah. Academics gets bashed for being, you know, overweight. Like, it, it's there's always going to be something that someone's going to find something to bash you over because you're successful and yeah. and you're doing stuff that is very hard to do that the person making the comments for unfortunately can't do themselves. Right. It just is what it is. Okay, so um, you've been called a culture vulture. Yeah. W- repeatedly, why? I mean, culture vulture is just another word for honky. Damn, I ain't heard honky since yeah. 1992. You know, since the, the 80s. <laughs> you know? Honky. Yeah, honky, wow. cracker. Damn. You know? I, I just look at it as the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, for example, I interviewed Leor Cohen recently. Really? Yeah. Is that why your YouTube is getting so much money? No. Because Leor Cohen is running YouTube. <laughs> Leor, running, yeah, I need to interview Leor. What's where you at? Yeah, he's the head of YouTube Music Global. Mm-hmm. But, but he too has been. He's, he's iconic. Jewish. He's, in, he's Israeli. But he's also yeah. iconic in hip hop. I mean, like beyond. I mean, listen, he was the first hip hop executive to run a major label. You know, he was not only the president of Def Jam, but then Def Jam merged with Polygram and became this big monolith, Island Def Jam. He was the president of all that. Yeah. Then he became the president and chairman of Warner Music. Right. Then he launched 300, <laughs> Young Thug, Lil Dirk, you know, Fetty Wap. He launched out of his living room and sold it for 400 million. And he gets called a culture vulture. So I'm like, all right, I'm in good company. Like, if he gets called a culture vulture, I don't feel as bad if he called a culture well, vulture. Well, next time you and Leo hang out, I would love to hang out. Okay. I'm a culture vulture, too. You know, they say I'm not black. <laughs> they look at me and think I'm Dominican because of my hair or my skin or whatever. I'm <clears throat> black. I'm proud to be black. And it'd be yeah. the black folks telling me, you're a color issue. And I'm like, I'm like, yo, y'all got issues. That's why I don't even look at the comments. Right. Do you look at the comments? Yeah, sometimes. Just yeah, I'll for jump in and talk my shit. <laughs> really? You know what I'm saying? I remember uh, one of my uh, posts. I, I just interviewed Vanilla Ice. No, no, I know I interviewed well, I interviewed Vanilla Ice, but before that, I interviewed um, uh, Evander Holyfield, mm-hmm. right? So I post in my community on on uh, YouTube, and uh, this one woman was like, "DJ Vlad only interviews black people is ugly ass." <laughs> mm-hmm. Number one, it's not true. Like literally, the right now, I think half my guests are white, mm-hmm. right? And then I remember, but you're I, not booking by race, no. Not the Who least. does that? Not the can, least. can we get some more white people over here though? Because we don't got no white people. Okay. I, so there's so many mafia guys that yeah. I've booked. Like, you know, like I said, we have vanilla ice right now. That's uh-huh. like the whitest <laughs> guy ice. out there. Ice. It's literally ice. Yeah. Vanilla. He's got the word vanilla, vanilla and in his ice. name, yeah. right? And I was just like, I remember I saw the car, I looked at her page and you know, I remember I responded. I said, have you looked at the mirror? <laughs> and then that just got a thousand replies. Wait, did you ask Vanilla Ice if WAC 100 hung him over the balcony? WAC 100? WAC 100 wasn't there. WAC 100 used to be rolling with Suge Knight. Are you saying that WAC was with Suge the day that they During, rolled up on Vanilla Ice? I'm saying allegedly that's what I've heard. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. I didn't know that. No, we did talk Sorry, about the Whack, incident. I ain't the police, but you know. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I did talk about that whole incident. Yeah. Uh, Vanilla Ice wasn't hung out the window, but Shug did take him up to the balcony for a private conversation <laughs> and implied 
that. See, that's the white Something way. That, that, that right there was the white description of Suge Knight walks you to the balcony of a major building. Yes. That ain't a conversation. That's just a look at yeah. what your future could be. Right. But that was after. I mean, he basically, the story was him and his two security guards walking to the hotel room and Suge and five guys were already in the room. I think Wack was one of the guys. Maybe. So you Next and, time I talk to Wack, I'll ask Well, him. you and Wack had this history where y'all beefed or whatever, and now you guys are cool. We talked last week. I like Wack. So what happened? How did you guys fall out? Uh, ten years ago... Uh, <laughs> you know you got scared again when you go back. <laughs> ten years ago, I just moved to L.A. Uh, I, was, I knew this video director who was shooting this video for Ray J. The game was also supposed to be there. He didn't show up. And it was for the song, I Hit It First. Mm-hmm. Right? Which was involved with KK. Yeah, it was like they had this Kim Kardashian lookalike. Yeah. Whatever. I was there. Um, I asked the director and Ray J, hey, can I take some pictures? They both said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I put the pictures out the next day, not knowing this was going to cause a problem. <laughs> not knowing that, oh, okay, they're trying to keep this secret or whatever else. So Wack called me and uh, had a con- you know, basically got really mad at me over the course of the conversation and some words were spoken. And was, I was he threatening like, you? Eh, Wack, like you always calling and bullying people. Something like that. But you know, I mean, listen, but I, I have my role in it also. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I understand, like, I made a mistake in that situation. He made a mistake in the situation. So I was like, all right, so we're just not talking anymore after that. Really? Like, you know, if this is how these things escalate with, with Wack, I'm cool. So for 10 years, we didn't talk. And then just recently, um, but the thing is, is that I didn't have a, a beef with Wack. Like, you, when his name would get brought up in interviews like this, I'd be like, yo, like, we don't talk, but... Wack has really accomplished a lot. Yeah, like he's he, he was rolling with Kanye. He got to meet. He got a picture with Elon Musk. No, but know? see, Wack. What people don't really realize, and when you guys talk it, because see, now that Wack is getting into our space and he's getting motion, he's figuring it out. Wack is literally one of the most connected people across the board that not only makes problems go away, but also creates opportunities. He's the reason why I met Kanye, interviewed him, went to work mm, with him. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like he was really in the mix and. Him and Adam are really rocking together. They have, he has a podcast mm-hmm. with Adam, and me and Adam are actually good friends. So it's like we're now having more and more people in common with each other. And what had happened was we had an interview with Game that was set up. And, you know, WAC knew, you know, it was, I guess, the, one of the intermediaries spoke to WAC and said, hey, listen, like, Vlad may not be comfortable with you being there because of your history. And WAC was like, ah, oh, no problem. Like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. Vlad don't want me there. I'm not going to stay in the way of business. But ultimately, that whole interview fell apart. You know, it was just a whole bunch of bullshit happened and whatever else. And I'm like, and Wack had actually texted me maybe a month before that, just kind of randomly. And I, it, I think it went to my spam folder, so I never replied. So I found it. And I'm like, all right, let me just give him a call. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like 10 years have passed. Yeah. I'm like, let me just give him a call. So I hit him up. I'm like, what's good? And he was like, oh, we still got the game interview tomorrow. I'm like, tomorrow, what? So we just got on the phone and we were both like, you know, I basically was like, look, we could sit here and argue about what happened 10 years ago, but you made millions of dollars since then. I made millions of dollars since then. That situation has had no effect on our lives. Yeah. So we can sit here and argue about it for, for an hour and a half and point the finger at each other. We both made mistakes and who cares? And ultimately, you both are businessmen. We're both businessmen. I mean, and in business, like, we have to figure out how yeah. to get through all that. And the thing is, I wouldn't have even mentioned this publicly, but he went on um, Clubhouse and, and mentioned it, which is why. Wax should own Clubhouse. He's own Clubhouse. He's the king of Clubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. So then it was like, and the thing is, and also the conversation we had had to do with money. 
So it was like there was a, a an appearance fee that he would get a piece of because he he manages game, and it was like I'm not just talking to him about working out our feelings or doing something for free or doing a favor. It's like okay, look, we have a a deal on the table. It didn't work out without you there. Let's try to work it out with you being involved. And he was like, great, let's do it. We we went through all the details. We hammered out everything that will happen and how it's going to go down. And then we have a, a game interview set up. <clears throat> and that's that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now me and him are, are cool as far as I'm concerned. I got a gift for you right now. I think this is the best time. It's right on the side. You see a box on the floor down there? You see a box? Our guests, our gifts are very well thought out here at the Jason okay. Lee Show. I can open it? Yes. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's a badge. And look at what the badge says. DJ Vlad, police. Hip-hop cop. You see the cop, you see 380. The 380 is What's the, the 380? Is the area code for Ukraine. Right? Okay. <laughs> look, we look, shout out to Marina who put some thought into this. I don't I don't see you as a cop. Is it because your interview style your interview style does come off like a deposition though? Because mm-hmm. you are so thorough. And yeah. I've been there, so I've seen you know, when I went in to get my interview, I don't go into Breakfast Club or Vlad or Drink Champs just as a guest. I go in as a student. Because if you want to be the best, you got to literally study the best. There's you can't be have an ego in business to where you think you're better than everybody. You think you got. You, I I went in looking at your operation, how you set up, and it was so simple, but yet so thorough. And the way you organize your notes, are you interviewing based on, like you're interviewing and asking questions that you know are going to be clips. So it's clip questions, but there but there's a thread between them all, so it flows. But like, is that your thing? Look, like when I got into this game. I was not a fan of hip hop media. I thought that all the radio DJs sucked. I thought Including that, Funk Flex? I'm not gonna name any names. I'm just saying that the interviews they do, they did and continue to do. They're very I, dick writing. I thought were very, yeah. yeah. It's dick writing, it's damn near PR. It's, it is PR. All the real questions that everyone really wants to know never get asked. Why do you think that is? Because there's a radio format, they're just looking, you know, it's not long form, so it's very, just a clip, you know, of something between the music. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I've talked to a lot of radio stations, and it's always been like, what I want to do, they don't do, which is why you never see me on the radio. Mm-hmm. I've had lots of conversations with all the biggest radio stations, but it was just like, I'm going to do what it is I want to do. I'm not going to go into your format just to get a job. Like, I'm not interested in that. So... I thought that the interviews were all horrible and the outlets that I would look up to was like 60 minutes that really like a 60 minute interview will change history. And that's how I went into it. So going into an interview, I'm looking to really ask the questions that everyone really wants to know, including myself. And also it's, it's a story done in real time with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you have to create this in one shot, essentially. You don't get a redo. Like, I didn't call you back and say, hey, listen, I want you to expand on these three things. No, like, whatever I got, by the time that camera shuts off is what I have to work with. So I come into that, and a lot of time is just spent agonizing over how I'm going to structure this thing. You know, and me, my assistant, Kente, we really, like, over time, I've had to sort of show him how I want certain things laid out because, they're, you know, I have a laptop in front of me. You know, you oh, I know. Yeah. I got a laptop. So I'm sitting there with a whole kind of blueprint, but also sometimes I'm 
looking up stuff because sometimes things come up that I wasn't prepared for. But it's, it's one of those things. And over time, people are like, oh, it sounds like an interrogation, which honestly is kind of a compliment because I'd rather have an interrogation than a softball piece of fluff mm-hmm. that no one cares about. So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Mm. And so when they've called you the cop, does that bother you or you don't care? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not, I'm not a cop. I don't work with police department. Well, you did just solve the Tupac case. I mean, yeah. I mean, let's, I'm going to give it up to Vlad. <laughs> and, 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 and those of you saying that um, not clapping, let me go ahead and just tell you. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to wear that, by the way. I'm That's a civilian. You. I ain't in the hip hop world. Don't I tip my toe in it? I tip out, uh, but I'm a civilian. Let me say this: um, uh, you recently got credited for um, uh, solving the Tupac murder case with the whole KVD interview. But that information you had that you you were involved with that years ago, right? Didn't you do well, an interview well, the, years the, ago? The interview was four years old. Yeah, yeah. So so that you did. Up, yeah, yeah. But you should have got the credit four years ago for doing it. Well, but the the rest happened four years later. Right. Right. So so shout out to Greg Kading. He's the one that actually got the confession, okay. which was like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I'm not exactly sure when. Uh, that, that resurfaced maybe around five years ago. So I'd already known that Orlando had killed Tupac or was heavily involved in that situation since like 2007 or something like that. And he's been dead for a while. Yeah, Orlando's dead. And Keefe's the last surviving person in that car. So, you know, I knew about the confessions, you know, which kind of coincided with a lot of the other stories that I did because I interviewed the first responder. I interviewed the guy behind the car. How do you find all these people? You find them, man. You, you research. You watch documentaries. You watch other interviews. You get a hold of people. You talk to people. It's, it's a whole thing. There's relationships. There's people that know people. And I knew someone who knew Keefe D. So we got in contact and Keefe D had just written a book. And that book was the basis of that interview. But did he reach out to you to have the conversation? Well, we, we, we reached out to him, and then uh, the co-writer of the book hit me back. Right. So they're putting out a book. So and they want to promote it. They want to promote it. So we're going to talk about what's in the book. Yeah. And we talked about what's in the book, and that pretty much told the whole story from beginning to end right there. But things move slowly. And I think over time, Las Vegas PD started to really understand and started to watch the interviews and so forth and been like, okay, well, at that point, I think they felt they had enough to actually arrest somebody. I don't think people understand because we live in a new world. Um, Those of you who are in your 20s or whatever, Tupac and Biggie's murder. First of all, Tupac and Biggie, biggest rap stars on the planet at one point. Um, and the East Coast, West Coast beef, which those of us that are 46, 50 lived through, which it was a real thing that you could feel in the air. The biggest of all time, you had Suge on the West Coast. If you saw the Source of War clips, you know what that is. And then uh, Diddy, who was a marketing genius and rose really fast on the East Coast with Bad Boy. So Bad Boy and Death Row became this thing where people were afraid to go to different coasts because, you know, you could get killed. People were getting threatened. So Gaddafi got killed... Uh, after Tupac died. Okay. Because some of his friends were playing around with guns and accidentally Okay, so none of them were killed in relation to... Okay. But people in both camps started to just... I don't know, maybe they were just dying. Yeah, I mean, Wolf... um, Well, okay, hold on. So uh, one of Suge's close friends got killed. Mm -hmm. I forgot what his name was, but Puffy's main bodyguard, Wolf, allegedly killed him. Mm -hmm. Wolf is dead, by the way, which is why you should talk about this. 
And that kind of created a whole bad situation. Wolf later on was killed by BMF during the shootout. Um, you know, he pulled the gun out first and so forth. So there was, there was murders that were starting to occur. But then the two biggest stars of the whole movie died, yes. were murdered. Yes. Tupac, we've, we've seen Faith talk about Biggie's murder. We've seen uh, Biggie's mom talk about Biggie's murder. We've seen people want to know when are these going to be solved. Tupac's murder then gets solved. Uh, well, we, I mean, he no hasn't convicted no yet. Conviction yet yeah. he, the man is in jail. Yeah, with no bond. Charged with the fact that he was in the car that led to the death of Tupac Shakur. Correct. Stop downplaying your accomplishment. You, are, you, you, you helped solve... Through your interview, through your work, one of the biggest mysteries in hip hop history, uh, with one of the biggest um, artists ever. What, how did that feel when you when you saw that happen? I mean, it didn't feel like anything to me because I felt like four years ago I'd already done it. But then people around me were like, "Yo, this is a big deal." Like Pierce Morgan reached out and wanted to mm-hmm. do an interview. I'm like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess this is a big deal," you know and. To me, it wasn't because I'd already done what I planned to do, which was to lay it all out and with all the details. But once the arrest happened, the rest of the world found out about it. Because like, I, I could be around an army of non-hip-hop fans and nobody will know who I am. But if I'm in like a hip-hop room, everyone in that room will know who I am. So, you know, I'm not a mainstream celebrity by any stretch of the imagination. So my world... I sometimes have blinders on and I don't understand what exactly my role is in all this. But when other people and when it became mainstream, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess it is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also earlier in the interview, you talked about how you weren't really validated for the work and the accomplishments and like the impact that you've had. This is a major impact on the culture because all of us love Tupac. Yeah. So I really see the interesting intersection of like, you're the police, you're a culture vulture, but oh my God, you're the, you, you, you're the king for solving this iconic mystery. Yeah. And like in all of that, you're still humble enough to say, well, I guess it's a bit, like I would have been outside with a Tupac shirt on, <laughs> uh, you know, but. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a full circle because remember I told you my the mix first. Tape. The mixtape, yeah. exactly. That was my first sort of crack into hip hop. You know, you know, when I cracked into the, sort of the industry was that Tupac mixtape. To go, and I remember when I first met Edie from the Outlaws, who's still a very good friend of mine. I remember when I first met him, he said, you know, you know how many of these mixtapes I've signed <laughs> over the years? Like everywhere I go, people would bring me these mixtapes for, for autographs. So to put so much effort, because Tupac is essentially my favorite artist, to, to start out and, and have the recognition of creating this piece of art around Tupac to eventually helping to solve his murder was like dope. Yeah. Like, like I, I dig it. He was one of my favorite also. We actually honored him at the um, Hollywood Unlocked Impact Awards this year. Set, his sister came and accepted on his behalf. And I, I know Layla Steinberg and Ray Love uh, pretty well. Yeah, um, I to Ray Love recently. So Keefe D, did he say that Diddy offered him a million dollars to kill Tupac? So, I mean, in so many words, there was a meeting at a deli on Sunset with, according to according to Keefe, between Puffy, Keefe, some other guys, where, you know, in a moment of frustration, Puffy may have said something to the effect of, like, I just, I'll pay a million dollars to make these guys go away. I don't know how serious he was. I don't know if it's even true. <clears throat> and according to Keefe, after the shooting occurred, he claims that Puffy called him and said, was that us? Once again, don't know if it's true. Now, it gets a little more interesting because according to, to Keefe, 
the gun that was provided for that shooting was a guy by a guy named Eric Von Zip. Eric Von Zip was this Harlem hustler who who definitely knew Keefe. You know, me and TK talked. TK Kirkland was was like living with him mm. for a long period with of time. Keefe? With Keefe? Well, no, with uh, Eric Von Zip. Oh wow. Him and Eric Von Zip were super close. They actually owned a house together and lived in that house. Eric Von Zip was also very close with uh, Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. Mike Tyson told me the story about how they ripped off Don King <laughs> for like 300000 one night. So he was like a hustler who was known to rob people, mm-hmm. right? So the story, according to Greg Kading and Keefe, was that Puffy gave a million dollars to Eric Von Zip that was supposed to go to Keefe. But where it gets murky is allegedly Eric Von Zip kept that money and open up a nightclub mm-hmm. called Von Zips. Mm-hmm. Eric Von Zip is dead, by the way. Mm-hmm. He died of cancer. So whatever money they say was used to pay for the murder of Tupac never made it to the actual murderers, mm-hmm. which is good for Puffy, if, even if it actually happened. I don't know whether all this is made up. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The chances of Puffy actually getting convicted for all this is almost zero. Mm-hmm. So whether it's true, whether it's not true, who knows? Well, he's brother love now. I mean, he's not, he's in the love era. And, you know, um, it's interesting how just like decades of mystery is now just forming into these new things and with social media and people coming forward. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, When King Von, he died, it's been three years now. Um, Asian Doll was mad at you or mad at your company for the interview that happened. And she basically said, fuck you, went off, whatever. Um, What was she mad about? Who knows? Do you, when you all are reporting on the deaths of hip hop stars, because that is, it's a part of the culture, it's a part of that work that you're doing. um, How do you approach that? And is there, are there parameters, sensitivities, or is it just like whatever's out there, we're going to get into it? Because I really feel how you approach it and how academics approach it is very different. I mean, look, I I gave my opinion. I mean, with the, with the Asian doll situation, you know, I, I, it was a little weird because in the beginning, she started saying that uh, that King Vaughn like called her, or texted her, and said, "Oh, you know, you know, like the people around me allowed me to get killed, and all this other type of stuff." And uh, I interviewed her, his Vaughn's manager, Hundred K Track, who was there, who got shot, and he was like, "This never happened." <laughs> like. Mm. No, he didn't contact Asian Doll or, or whatever else. And then suddenly, oh, no, it came to me in a, in a dream. You know, and then it's like suddenly Let's she's, she's Queen Vaughn and then she's got King Vaughn tattoos on her face and everything else like that. And I was just like, listen, I understand that this is someone you cared about. I mean, they were broken up at the time, from what I understand. But I understand, but they still, you know, fucked with each other and everything like that. But it was just like, you can mourn someone, but when you start making up stories about what happened and then have to double back and say that, oh no, I, I, this was, came to me in a dream or whatever else, I just thought it was a bit much. So I made comments about it and, and she took it personally. So, you know, I think when, I, when Shirley Jew interviewed her, she showed up and was like, fuck Vlad, and then stormed out. <laughs> you know, but from what I understand, which was actually kind of funny because I wasn't even there, uh-huh. right? I, I find out about it after the fact. It's almost how Birdman did Charlemagne, where he yeah, said, put kinda, some respect right. on my name and then start right. down. But like, I guess like, like Shirley works with a bunch of weed companies, and like she, there was like all these, these weed things that they gave her. Uh, Asian Doll, so after Asian Doll basically cussed out the camera, and I'm not there, 
she grabbed all the weed stuff and stormed out the door, but the door was locked, so she couldn't get out the door. Did you guys film that? No, we did it. We didn't even put it out. She put it out herself. Like it was kind of like a setup for her to. I don't know. So do you do think whatever. all that when they do that? Because we live in this social media era now where like clout is a drug and like, you know, being t- promoting stuff requires you to be creative and go viral. Do you think it was clout? Do you think that was her way of handling her trauma? What did you think that no, was? It was definitely clout. Yeah. I mean, you know, if she had a problem with me, she could have talked to me. I wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. I think if I was there, I don't think it would have happened mm-hmm. because I have a different type of energy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm saying this is a little Asian girl that she's basically screaming you know, next to, you know what I mean? So it was just like, it was just a little weird. Yeah. I think she, from what Shirley told me also was that, because the thing is like, Asian Doll, I gave her one of her first interviews. I have nothing against Asian mm-hmm. Doll. I gave her one of her first interviews. She even used part of my interview in one of her songs. Mm-hmm. And she, we were supposed to do another interview and she just didn't show up. And then when someone had come, oh, why don't you interview Asian Doll? I said, well, we did, but she didn't show up. And she was like, my bad, LOL, or something. Mm-hmm. Like, so she didn't, you know, she was basically just fucking around, wasting everyone's time. But she only did the interview when she found out I wasn't going to do it. So I think she just took advantage of Shirley doing it to try to get her rocks off in whatever way she wants to. But it was, it was weird because I have nothing against Asian Doll. You know what I'm saying? I actually thought it would have been an interesting interview mm-hmm. because she really was with King, with King Vaughn, you know, like from people around him, you know, they really did care about each other. And even after they, they did break up, he would still pay for her flights and they kind of kept in touch and everything. And I think it's awful that someone you care about died violently so young. Uh, but, you know, my comments are my comments. And ultimately, if you want to go and say outlandish things, like he texted me and people are taking this for fact mm-hmm. because you really are connected to that person, um, people are going to comment about mm-hmm. it. And, but... But everyone wants to say, oh, you're, it's your fault. You should have said that. So mm-hmm. like, I understand. I say what I say. I stand behind it. So that interview never aired. What other interviews have you done? Wait, there, it wasn't an interview. She just yelled into the camera and stormed out. And that was it? That was it. So she came all the way down yes, to that. <laughs> to just do that. Asian, you a damn fool. Okay. <laughs> what, have you had interviews that you filmed that haven't aired? I mean, there was this... Uh, I'm trying to think. Not, not really. But we don't really. I mean, there are certain things that we don't do. Like I remember, Ugly God stormed out of his interview this one time. And, ugly uh, God. Ugly God. Yeah, it's rapper. He was super hot at one. I'm gonna point, tell you right now. Nobody's allowed to call DJ Vlad Vlad a culture vulture because he know more about this shit than I do. I, there's an Ugly God out there. I mean, ugly God. Yeah. He stormed out of the interview, and we just didn't air that part. But me and him talked afterwards, and he explained to me he's just going through a lot of depression Mm -hmm. and stuff like he apologized off camera and and so forth, and he's been kind of going through it. So there are certain things that we don't want to be known as the platform where you just wild out and disrespect the host. That's Adam 22. We don't let y'all have... Adam likes that shit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Charlamagne likes that shit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's certain things that I would just cut out because I'm not trying to be known in that way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But but, I feel like we all have our thing. That's yeah, not my thing either. We all either. have our thing. I was with Adam 22 last night. Adam 22 said, you're the GOAT. I mean, okay. he said that. And I love Thank the you. fact that he, you know, we're all competitive, I guess, by nature because we're in the business, but we're not competing. Right. But but if you look at my history, I've embraced all the new content creators. Mm-hmm. Like you. Yeah. I reached out to you. Before I became where I am now, though. Exactly. We had dinner years yeah, ago. Years Me, ago, you, and right? the owner of Hip Hop DX at the right, time. Right, Tommy. Yeah. But, but, but this is my, my track record. The first person 
to give Charlemagne a, a nationwide look in South Carolina was me. I put him on this beef mixtape I was working on with on with beef on the beef DVDs. Like he called me like, "Yo, this is the first time. This is before Wendy found him." Mm. Not to, not to say that he's not talented because he is, but I was the first person to notice. You discovered Charlemagne. I didn't discover Charlemagne. He was already on the radio in South Carolina, but I'm the one to find the stuff he was doing in South Carolina and put it on a mixtape that was internationally distributed. Sean Cotton from Say Cheese, Adam Twenty Two, Academics. These are all people that I saw their potential early, and I would reach out to them, and I built relationships with them, and I would have them on my platform, and would offer to go on their platforms whenever. They asked. Mm-hmm. Math Hoffa, same kind of thing. I was fucking with him early. His platform started to take off. I was right there being a guest, getting his numbers up. So so I'm, I'm like that naturally because I feel like we could do so much better working together as opposed to beefing with each other. And there's enough eyeballs to go around. Mm-hmm. And it's all essentially free content anyway. So if you watch a Vlad TV interview, you could watch a Hollywood Unlocked interview afterwards. It doesn't take away from my interview. Mm. I do have to uh, blame Vlad for something, though. I'm, all y'all want y'all to know, staff, every, all my staff listen. Vlad took me to this nice dinner. We went to Boa, me, him, the owner of the Hip Hop DX. We started talking, and Vlad looks over to me, and he goes, have you been sued yet? I'm like, <laughs> don't ask me no crazy shit like that. No, I ain't been sued. He's yeah. like, oh, I said, have you been sued? He's like, oh, I've been sued like 20 times. Then the other guy's like, yeah, I've been sued. Like, yeah, I'm getting sued now. And they're, they're, they're kind of laughing but talking about how they're being sued. And I'm sitting there with no money. Like, because, you know, I'm, I'm on my way. I'm just starting my thing. I'm figuring this out. I'm like, I hope I never get sued because I can't afford it. Yeah. I've gotten sued so much since then. I don't Told know you. if it's your fault or just the it's industry. not my fault. But once you are in yeah. it, you know, but mine has been more like IP infringement, you know, using a photo, right. as opposed to whatever. But like being sued is just a part of the process. It's just part of the business, man. Have you ever been sued by somebody that you didn't see it coming, like somebody that you really respected or? Not really, man. I mean, it's just part of the business. Yeah. You understand that uh, that a lawsuit is a lawsuit. And just because you settle doesn't mean you're guilty. It just means it's cheaper to settle than to actually go all the way through court. And it's just part of it. You know, if you and people don't sue broke people. You know, they knew they know there's some money over here, so they sue. Mm. It's just part of it. You know, you get sued. Sometimes you have to sue people and life goes on. Mm. Um, you almost had Hillary Clinton uh, over there. Is politics a part of your thing, too? Uh, did we almost have Hillary? I mean, we've had conversations. I mean, we, I just had uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That's really? Running, that's running right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So politics is... I mean, it's, it's everything. Mm-hmm. Like, like Vlad TV, um, you know, because we've never been cool with record label PRs. They're the worst. We just haven't. Do you, you build your own relationships. Yeah, yeah, but you know, we, we generally get blocked mm-hmm. by the PR at the record labels, yeah. which is annoying. I've, I've kind of lashed out yeah. when it comes to this type of situations before and probably gone overboard sometimes. But like, we've accepted over time that we're not going to be on the media runs for all these major artists because there's someone at the label that's going to block it. They'd rather take them to the LA radio station and get 2,000 views. Entertainment on the radio tonight or, e- or extra work. Or, or whatever. Yeah. It's annoying to watch, but whatever. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, so we realized that, that like, we can't build our business around these major hip hop, major label artists. So you have to think outside the box. You have to say, okay, we're going to start building up our own, you know, in the same way that like CNN or Fox has pundits that come in to talk about different topics on a regular basis, we built up our own crew of people that come in and talk, you know, what we call our regular guests. So like TK Kirkland, Ari Spears, Young Jock, 
now 1090 Jake, Boosie, of course. You know what I'm saying? Like these are all regular guests that we have business relationships with that come in every couple months and do their thing on the platform. That's a lot of the business. Um, you know, there's, and there's also, okay, so we can't get these rappers, but let's get some of the rappers and singers that may not be at the top of the charts right now, but are iconic people. Like, you know, I did Smokey Robinson at the start of the year. Mm-hmm. Smokey Robinson, one of the most accomplished musical act, you know, musical singers of ever. Was that when he went on and talked about Diana Ross? Uh, yeah, he talked about Diana Ross. Yeah, that. my friend's mom. What is wrong with you and Smokey <laughs> over there? What, did Smokey smoke something before he did the interview? Because no, he, he was cool, man. I see, love Smokey. Vlad gets you comfortable, and then you just start talking reckless. Right. Oh, blue eyes. You know. Uh, but when you're hearing stuff, like when you're hearing Smokey Robinson talk about Diana Ross, are you there going, cha-ching, that's, gonna, that's money? I mean, it's, it's part of the story, right? It's part of the history. But, you know, we're not just focusing on that. I mean, I'm not just going to sit here and sit down with Smokey Robinson and talk about all the women he has sex with, yeah. right? We're talking about, you know, <sighs> cruising. Mm-hmm. We're talking about his major, you know, all the Motown stuff. We're talking about how, I mean, this is probably the most accomplished musical person I've ever sat down with. Mm-hmm. You know, we sat down with Shaka Khan. You know, I just had Johnny Gill on my show. I had Ricky Bell on my show. You know, like I, I've had Dallas Austin, uh, Rodney Jerkins, uh, Teddy Riley. Like you know, like like iconic, some of the most incredible musical minds of our era. I've had on there, and and, and this is, you know, yeah, you, you're gonna get into some of the some of the drama and whatever else, but that's not the purpose of the interview. The purpose mm-hmm. of the interview is to really highlight this person's life. That's incredible because look, like we all, you know, you, me, we've all gotten it out the mud. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like our dad was Rupert Murdoch <laughs> and he said, okay, I'm going to retire here. Here's this media empire that you're just going to run. Right. We started from the or very Donald bottom. Trump, who got yeah. it from the mud, but with a loan from his from dad. His dad, from right? Dollars. I didn't. I'm an immigrant. Yeah, my family was middle class. Like yeah. I didn't get anything from them. Definitely no connections of any sort. They're they're Russian immigrants, right? So we all got it out the mud, and to sit there and display these stories to the world, and having this army, these hundreds of millions of young people watch this, going like. Yo, I could do this too. Here's, mm-hmm. here's an example. Like, like, you know, we started doing kind of a people's homes and car collections recently. So like the first home tour was Boosie's house, the mm-hmm. Boosie estate, which is on 88 acres. And he just described how when he went to prison, because he had these murder charges that he beat, he lost his house. And he came out, he said, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of land in Georgia. I'm going to slowly build this house. 10,000 here, 20,000 here. 10,000 here, 5,000 here, slowly built up this huge house. And now he has a city. He has like five homes, multi, you know. Oh, we've seen the back. We've seen it. You've seen it, yeah. right? It's crazy, right? But the, but the most important part of that interview is not showing off Boosie's house. It's to show that a young, poor kid is able to do this by himself. Mm-hmm. Without rich parents, without funding, without selling a soul, without doing things that go outside his um, his values that and he says that yo if I could do it you could do it. Boosie is the hood 
hero. My cousins who are back home in Stockton call me all the time and said, when is Boosie coming on? And I have this love-hate. <laughs> I, I connected you all, though. I, I was going to give you a prize. Let me give you a prize. I was going to, I mean, me and Boosie have had this love-hate relationship from a distance. I don't know if he knew me and I, I don't know him personally because I've been very vocal about his, um, you know, commentary on the gay community. Uh, but he comes from a certain place that, you know, that may be his optics and, I, you know, whatever. And then I've had my own issues with comments he's made around, you know, having his younger kids have sex or get involved with sex or whatever. And I never talked to him until I called Vlad and I said, I want to interview Boosie. And one day I was sitting here doing an interview and Vlad kept FaceTiming me and Vlad never FaceTimes. I finally called him afterwards and you put me on the phone, Boosie. I want to thank you for that. And now he and I are talking about him coming on the show. Because, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not in your world, the hip hop world like that. I tip in and out because it's just too dangerous. And security is high these days and I ain't got the budget all the time. But the other day I went to the taping of the hip hop uh, 50th anniversary hip hop for the Grammys. Mm -hmm. Everybody was there. Every rapper from back in the day and now, whatever there. Uh, when came out, I mean, he destroyed it. Mm. Everybody got a, the whole place was standing up. I mean, he had the energy that it, it, you could see the difference. How did you guys build such a trusting relationship for him to come and be as uh, open with you? Well, if you look, and this is on our YouTube channel, I interviewed Boosie and Webby in 2006 when they first got signed to Atlantic. Like, they're kids. It's like a real skinny, young, mm -hmm. you know, Boosie with giant clothes. And um, that was our first interview. And we, we both remember that. And then... When we did our first real interview after Vlad TV launched, um, that was, it became, it was the Hypnotized with Hatred mm -hmm. video, like a, a term that just became kind of coined, you know, by, by the hip hop world. And it, it, it went really viral and it was like, yo, like we got something here. I think, I think we got something mm -hmm. here. So he just became a regular guest. And over time, it was very clear that he was becoming my biggest regular guest. So, so me and him worked out a business relationship around that, and um, it's been great ever since. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and we do, Bo I mean, there's, Boosie's usually running, like when one ends, mm -hmm. I'll usually go with another one. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll film another one. There's one running right now. But it was just like, yo, um, it, it's, it's just the combination. And, and people think that, like, it, it's not just one person it's you know skip and shannon kind of mm -hmm. kind of dynamics it's like you got one guy that's from one place another guy that's a, from a totally different place and they don't agree on everything like there's pushback on both sides like you know me and him argued about getting massages from men like he said he'll never do it and i said i get massages but from he's, men he's all the time he's Who cares? extremely <laughs> entertaining though right. i have to tell you i don't hate boosie at all so boosie i face i've vlad facetimes me boosie gets on the phone i say you know I'm going to be your homosexual homeboy, right? Since you don't like the gays. And he turns the phone and he goes, my assistant's gay or yeah. whatever. I go, yeah, exactly. That's why I need you on my show. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for that. You know, and course, again, man. that goes back to like how we work together and how yeah. it's, you know, you know, I, I've always felt like with you, you've been very just much, a, a, you know, giving me advice, you know, not holding your relationships to your chest. And again, when you interviewed me, I felt it was, um, I felt like you honored not just me and the work I've done, but my history and my brother. I mean, one of the most touching parts of the interview, if you haven't seen it, you need to go over there and watch it. It's when you ask me about my brother, I don't like talking about my brother because it's probably the most emotional experience that I've ever had in my life and the most important person I can say today in my life. I remember being there in the interview. I had my glasses on 
and you're sitting there and you got all these bright lights and you, you know, you're, you're in your computer, you're interviewing me. When you ask me about my brother and I start telling the story, I start getting emotional. And I remember saying, you ain't gonna come on Vlad's platform and be a pussy and cry. I fought the tears back. I got through that <laughs> shit. But I was choked up. But I really want to say, you know, um, thank you for asking me about my brother and honoring his story enough to be that thorough. Because I feel like when people get me in interviews, they want to get these headlines or they want to get these moments. And I feel like you can get them if you just honor the work and treat it like art. I mean, interviews, me, me and uh, Jamel Hill talked about this uh, during our first interview. It, doing interviews is like a craft. It's like being a leather worker or a, wood, a woodworker. It, it comes with experience. Mm -hmm. I could ask anyone anything, but I have to figure out a way to ease into that question mm -hmm. without having them storm out. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or feel like, offended and stay yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if we came in and I'd be like, Okay, let me ask you about this really traumatic thing with your brother. You know, yeah. you'd be like... It changes the whole vibe. Change, like, I wouldn't get the answer I want. You wouldn't feel comfortable. It, it, it just wouldn't go on right. You have to ease into it. You have to get the person comfortable. And it's not easy because you're sitting down. I mean, me and you know each other, but most of the people I sit down with are total strangers. Mm -hmm. We're sitting down for the first time. They may be familiar with my work. They may not. Some of them are fans. Some of them have no idea who I am. Or their label PR scared the shit out or of Or the label now, said, and, you know... Yeah. Be don't, careful. Don't be careful with this guy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm a scary figure in this in this media space, right? Um, so you, you have to you have to really figure things out. And a lot of times it comes with time. The, the longer you do it, the better you are. And you know, try to sit down with a stranger for an hour and a half and create an entertaining story. It, you're not gonna do that the first time. You could have a journalist degree from from Harvard and you won't be as good you know, as you who's been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. So so it's a it's a skill that you start to get. You know, I mean it I've gotten better over the years. Has Doja know? Cat unblocked you yet? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think she has. I when when you look at her now and you think back because they had a moment, she blocked him, but did she she blocked you because she was she wanted that old interview taken down and you didn't? She, she wanted it down before we even ran it. Really? Yeah, it was like... It she, was her interview. She controlled it was, it what was she her, said. It was her first interview. I think it was her second... Well, I think it was her first actual interview because the interview... The only thing I'd seen before was her talking about Bitch, I'm a Cow on Genius. I didn't this like that This was the song. Bitch, I'm... Yeah. I loved it. I didn't like that song. I loved it. She was on Wild and Out and she was a part of the Red Team and I was there and they were like, the, the Moo Girls coming. I'm who's the Moo Girl? The Cow song. I did go see the Genius thing. I, I like the Genius interview because I like their style and format but like bitch I'm a cow like I don't, I don't know I just, I just thought it was clever yeah I wasn't on a farm as a kid I don't know I thought it was clever yeah I thought it was clever I thought she had this sort of unique thing about her mm -hmm. so I brought her in we had what I thought was a dope interview and then afterwards she DM me she was like I you know I want you to scrap this whole interview and I'm like I just didn't respond because <laughs> I'm like I'm not gonna scrap it and she's like oh it's like that Block. And, and then, then that was that. And then now that you've seen the evolution of the Doja Cat brand, now she 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 just comes off as a weirdo. Yeah. 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 I mean, she doesn't do interviews anymore, so it's not like I really lost out. Yeah. You know, from that relationship, but yeah, that was that was it. There was really nothing more exciting about me and Doja Cat beyond that that whole situation. I don't know if I'd answered. Maybe we could have developed more of a working relationship, but yeah, it just that just was what it was. Who's been your least interesting interview? My least interesting yeah, like who have you like you look back and you're like, God, that was a waste um, of time. Hard to say. 
it's hard to say. I, I do so many, you know, and yeah, a lot of them don't really come off the way you would hope they would. But, you know, it, it's, it's really, I feel, up to me to get that person out their show. Mm-hmm. It's not really up to them to create an entertaining interview. It's up to me to ask the right questions and to build the energy and so forth. But I, I, I can't really answer that question. Who's been your favorite? It's been so many. Um, uh, I mean, like I said, uh, the, the Smokey Robinson one was one of my favorites. Uh, interviewing Fab Morvan from Millie Vanilli mm. was definitely one of my favorites because this was such a iconic story. <clears throat> you know, this was the only group that had to give back the Grammy mm-hmm. for lip syncing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a whole story behind that. One of the members died from a drug overdose mm-hmm. and there was sort of a really crazy story. I mean, obviously the Kiki D interview was extremely important. Um, let me think what else. Um, I mean, the Mike Tyson one was really dope, even though he kind of scared the shit out of me <laughs> at one point. Um, what about Tyrese? Never interviewed him. Would you interview him? Um, I don't know. Probably not. Really? Yeah. I mean, he's going through such an emotional time with this marriage or the divorce and, you know, him and Charlamagne, they have their emotional relationship. And I actually, yeah. I text Tyrese and we, we communicate. Um, I haven't had a bad experience with him yet. Why would you not want him on the show? I, I think what I realized, because there's a little bit of a back and forth with me and Tyrese, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you saw that. Yeah. I think that once I really looked into it and went into his history, I realized I was dealing with someone with mental illness. Mm. And um, at that point, I sort of just left it alone. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you're not going to get, you know, when you're dealing with someone with mental illness, it's just, you're not going to win. You're not, you know, it's just going to create more, more kind of chaos and so forth. So ultimately, I just left it alone. And, you know, I've done this a few times. Like, um, like Orlando Brown, you know, we did an interview with him and it's like, I that, that was a clearly lot. that okay, this person is is has has mental issues. That's not just trolling or trying to go viral like off camera. They're really like this. Well, because at some point it's not. Yeah. It's it becomes exploitation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm trying to. I'm not trying to exploit people who are just not fully fully there. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm saying I'm not here to you know do these types of types of things. So yeah, with the Tyrese thing, I realized you know between the crying. And you know how he admitted being on antipsychotic medications mm-hmm. and so forth. Is I'm not I'm not just dealing with someone who is just just basically trolling and and is you know kind of at a, at a, a totally stable kind of level. So it's just like I'm just gonna leave it alone. You know I'm a fan of Tyrese. At the end of the day, he's got iconic movies, and you can't work with everybody. When you, what do you make of the whole DJ Envy getting help from Tyrese with his marriage thing? Did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. What'd you think? Um, thought it was a little weird. Um, I'm surprised that Envy said that to Tyrese. You know, like I wanted to punch your mouth <laughs> on the yeah, Christmas on club. air. On air, that was uh, that was a little unexpected. Because Envy's usually yeah. I mean, I know Envy. Yeah. I interviewed Envy recently. Yeah. We did a whole feature on his cars, and you know, me and him kept in contact since then. Um, you know, but I think when it comes to, to family issues, you have someone who's more important than the person you're interviewing. You have someone you live with. Mm-hmm. You have someone you have kids with. So, so there is, you know, it's kind of like once you start crossing the line into family, 
it's like a fuck a career, fuck, fuck my job, fuck this business. This runs deep. This is someone who I have to see every single day. This is someone whose kids are produced from that person. So I think it just ran whatever happened between them. I'm not exactly sure because obviously Envy's saying one side, Tyrese is saying something completely different. Um, I know Envy, I don't know Tyrese. You know, obviously something happened that really bothered both uh, Envy and his wife. And he felt that that was the time that that it was, you know, brought up. Me personally, I probably would have had a conversation offline to see if I could do it. But listen, Envy handled it the way he handled it. And it is what it is. It's hard to form relationships with the people that we cover. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we have to cover them in the negative. Right. And then it becomes a problem. What do you think about the DJ Envy real estate Rico stuff happening? Um, I mean... From what I understand, Envy is a victim along with everyone else. That's what I've said. Yeah. He's not being charged with anything. Mm-hmm. I know people are running with the narrative because Envy chose to partner up with this person on a different project, which was like, like the, the classes and so forth. And unfortunately, he's going to have to bear the brunt of that because of his official association with him. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that some people are saying well, I only invested in the Caesar guy because it seemed like you were co-signing right. on this other thing. That's what they've been saying. And it, it is too bad. And ultimately, I think Envy has learned an important lesson about who, when you partner with somebody, you have to really do, do deal. Do and diligence. how to share your platform or not share exactly. your platform. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, we've had... You know, we've had some people on our platform that I, I wouldn't have again. You know, I mean, I think we had Brother Polite. We did like two interviews with him and he was convicted of a bunch of like crazy. He's right? been on my platform. He yeah. still posts clips from several years ago, yeah. but I, but he wouldn't yeah, come back he, on he my He was platform. convicted, I think, on some pedophilia type, yeah. type stuff. So it was like, oh, damn. Like, I, I feel bad that I gave him a platform. But you didn't know. But I didn't, I didn't know. I did, I didn't back know. then, none of this yeah. stuff was happening. Yeah, we so, didn't know. so it's kind of like, yo, like sometimes... But ultimately, we still hold that, right? Now we're somehow associated with a guy who's associated with this Mm -hmm. because we gave him a platform. So you never know. Now, if I had gone into business with Brother Polite, we were business partners, (laughs) and we were like, hey, come come to our conference and whatever else, it would have been way worse for me. Yeah. So I think that's ultimately what Envy's going through, and and it's too bad because I I like Envy and I respect him. You know, I'd interviewed him before also years and years ago, and I have a close relationship with Charlemagne, and because of him, I'm always... Connected to envy with you know with one degree, so it's it's sad to see him having to go through this and having to deal with the the rumors and the fake news. Oh, like iHeart got raided by the feds. Well, I've also true. said there's like a lot of DJ Envy uh, Breakfast Club haters, Charlemagne haters yeah. that have been commenting. And I mean, you know, I've made up with Joe Budden, I guess, via the internet. But Joe Budden has been very vocal and making jokes out of it. Now he's being a, uh, ran up on by Caesar's brother. Um, and then you, you know, you have Funk Flex who did this long video dragging Charlemagne into it too. But I think a lot of that, you know, people playing these internet games because there's a lot of jealousy and hate. I just think for Envy in general, um, you've had issues with Joe Budden. Where are you guys? Are you guys cool now? 